I'm always afraid when I come up here and my wife is doing the microphone that she's going to just cut me off. And she probably would have good right to do so. <clears throat> For those of you who were here last week, I just wanted to add, my pants don't fit Elia King either, but for a very different reason than Tony's daughter's pants don't fit him. Thankfully, they stretch a bit, so they do fit me a little bit. When I was about 13 or 14 years old, I won a cherry-eating contest. It really wasn't a cherry-eating contest. It was more like a cherry-stuffing contest. The object was to stuff as many cherries as I could into my mouth or into our mouths. It was a contest. And I won. I stuffed 50 ripe, juicy, western slope Bing cherries into my mouth with the seeds. And yes, of course, the big joke was, well, guess who has the biggest mouth? The problem was, though, after you've done that, what do you do then? I have a similar feeling today. We have a saying in English that you can bite off more than you can chew. And the more I've prepared for today's sermon, the more I've felt perhaps I have attempted to bite off more than I can chew. It might help if I tell you a little bit what the inspiration for the title of this sermon was. I was reading Philip Yancey's book, Soul Survivor. And in it, he talks about the Christian-Japanese novelist Shusaku Endo. One of the nonfiction books that Endo has written was titled A Life of Jesus, which I subsequently read and I would highly recommend. In the preface to the American edition to that book, Endo describes why he wrote the book. I wrote this book for the benefit of the Japanese readers who have no Christian tradition of their own and who know almost nothing about Jesus. What's more, I was determined to highlight the particular aspect of love in his personality precisely in order to make Jesus understandable in terms of the religious psychology of my non-Christian countrymen, and to demonstrate that Jesus is not alien to their religious sensibilities. Indo was fascinated but troubled by the willingness of the Japanese people to accept almost all things Western, from rock and roll to baseball, and yet, they are one of the more resistant Christian nation, uh, resistant Asian nations to Christianity. His conclusion was that the religious mentality of the Japanese is responsive to a God who suffers with us and who allows for our weaknesses, not one who judges us harshly and then punishes us. He wrote, in brief, the Japanese tend to seek in their gods and Buddhas a warm-hearted mother 
rather than a stern father. I'm told there's a Japanese saying that the four most dreadful things on earth are fires, earthquakes, thunderbolts, and fathers. Indo believed that Japan will never accept a god presented as an authoritative father image, but that the feminine mother love image of God in Jesus would appeal very much to the Japanese who live in a social order that is even now, to a vast extent, male-dominated, but where men also retain great affection for their mothers who, at least ideally, forgive and suffer and sacrifice for love of their children. As I read that, I asked myself the questions, how does that compare to the spiritual needs of Americans, and how do we witness to it? Before Jesus ascended to heaven, he left his disciples two commands, love and witness, which really you could say is only one command since true witnessing should be an outflowing of love. But I think we Christians like to keep those separate because we feel we do pretty good at witnessing, but maybe not so good at loving. As an Adventist missionary kid, I think I was born knowing that I had to witness. I wasn't really sure what I was supposed to say or do, but I knew I was supposed to witness. My first attempts at witnessing, however, were rather dismal. The first time I can ever remember doing anything even close to witnessing was when I was six years old. My neighborhood friend Brad Campbell and I found a dead butterfly. When Brad said something about the butterfly being in heaven now, I jumped into witnessing mode. No, I said, dead things don't go to heaven when they die. They turn into dirt until Jesus comes and then he'll resurrect them. We argued back and forth for a while and then decided to do a scientific experiment. We placed the butterfly in a small box and we buried it for a week. After a week, we dug up the box and we opened it to see who was right. And as we opened it, there was no butterfly, no dirt, nothing. Brad was convinced that Jesus had taken it to heaven. I was totally confused. The next time I tried to witness was also about when I was six years old, and I was asked to sit by my mother in a waiting room in a car dealership where she went to pay for some car repairs. As I sat there, a lady sat down next to me and turned and politely asked, if I minded if she smoked a cigarette. What an opportunity for witnessing. I looked at her and said, no. But my greatest witnessing experience happened when I was eight years old. I've shared it with you before here, but I think most of you have either forgotten it or weren't here when I shared it. 
My father was making surgical rounds at the Roman Catholic hospital where he practiced, and I was waiting in the doctor's lounge for him. However, there was no drinking fountain in the doctor's lounge, so I went out into the main corridor to find a drinking fountain. And as I approached the fountain, a woman came up to me dressed in a long, black, flowing gown with a white hood surrounding her face that was covered by a black, box-like structure around her head. She smiled at me and began asking me questions. She asked me my name and how old I was. I quietly answered her. Then she asked me where I went to school and what grade I was in. I was in third grade at the Seventh-day Adventist Junior Academy, but fortunately, I had listened carefully in Sabbath school and church and Bible classes, so I was prepared for this kind of interrogation from a Catholic authority. I stood tall, looked her straight in the eye, and boldly said, I go to St. Joe's Elementary School. If one carefully reads Christ's commission to the disciples in Matthew 28 and John 13, he essentially says, love each other like I've loved you, and go teach others how to love like me, and I'll be with you. This takes us back to Shusaku Endo's concerns. Did Jesus love like a father or like a mother? Or does God love like a man and Jesus loves more like a woman? And which gender type of love is the most universally winsome? In current evangelical American theology and that which has been pushed on the Japanese, God is definitely male. And not just male, but a stern and judgmental father figure. The standard example for his male followers is epitomized in the real-life and screen-life depictions of John Wayne, the tough embodiment of heroic masculinity that, for many, has become the touchstone for authentic Christian manhood. I was warned that many in the audience may not know who John Wayne was, so let me tell you a bit about his career. When he was born, he was named Marion Morrison, but when he became an actor, he changed his name because he thought that was not masculine enough. During his 50-year career between the late 1920s and 1979, when he died, he was called the Duke, and he was known as the man's man. In his movies, which were mostly westerns or war-themed, he was usually the militaristic masculine hero who saved defenseless women, children, and others, usually from villains who tended to be of ethnic origin. In real life, John was married three times, had seven children, admitted to multiple extramarital affairs, was a chain smoker who died of lung cancer, but still claimed that he supported the Christian lifestyle, Christian morals, and strong family values. The evangelical view of masculinity has now become both personal and political, teaching Christian men how to think about things like sex, 
guns, war, national borders, Muslims, immigrants, the military, foreign policy, and the nation itself. Those Renaissance and Victorian pictures that we have of a meek and mild Jesus have now morphed more into masculine pictures of Jesus, angrily whipping the money changers in the temple, or even sitting serenely with an AR-15 rifle in his lap. In fact, one of Colorado's representatives to Congress has joked that it was because Jesus didn't have enough AR-15 rifles that his government ended up killing him. In 2015, John McDougall, an army chaplain, West Point graduate, and veteran of Iraq and Afghanistan, published the book, Jesus Was an Airborne Ranger, Find Your Purpose Following the Warrior Christ. In it, he claimed that there was nothing prim and proper about Jesus, who was a wild-at-heart ranger on a mission a lower-class laborer who knew how to work and play hard. He noted that you can't spell ranger without the word anger. This was the Messiah which the Jewish leaders and the zealots of Israel were looking for in Christ's day. It's one of the reasons the mob chose Barabbas over Jesus. It's still what some are looking for in Christ today. In Shusaku Indu's book on Christ, he chose to have Christ preach the Sermon on the Mount at the same time that he fed the 5,000. As you may recall, it was at that feeding where there was an attempt by many, including the disciples led by Judas, to force Christ to announce that he was the Messiah. Indo has Christ respond to that push by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Ellen White notes that after this, many of those who had been following Christ for power and miracles dropped away, and that Judas was sorely disappointed at Jesus' apparent cowardice, or at least his appearance of weakness. Judas wanted more aggressive warfare and was continually advancing the idea that Christ would reign as king in Jerusalem. Just like Christ's disciples, many of us are apparently not very good with metaphors. When we hear king, we think of a monarch sitting on a throne. When we hear shepherd, we see someone leading real sheep. When we hear potter, we can even feel the heat of the fiery kiln. And when we hear father, we think, well, what do we think? Do we really believe that God has the physical and psychological attributes of a human of the male gender. There's a painting in the National Gallery of Art by Salvador Dali 
that has long intrigued me. It's titled, The Sacrament of the Last Supper, and it shows Christ at a long table with 12 disciples, very similar to Leonardo da Vinci's more famous and familiar painting of the Last Supper. I was planning on showing you a picture of Dali's painting, but unfortunately, I asked for permission to do so since I knew that it would be on live stream and eventually on YouTube, and I didn't want either me or the church to end up getting sued. I first asked the National Gallery of Art. They referred me to the copyright holders in Spain, who further referred me to their licensing executive, who then asked me all sorts of questions about my use of the picture. Would it be downloadable? Would it be featured on print media? What size and placement of the image would be used? How many people would be seeing it, both in person and online? How many copies would be sold? And finally, what was my billing address? So I decided I'll just describe it to you instead. On the table next to Christ, there is a white dove. And towering behind Christ and the table is a bare, headless torso of what appears to be a human male with his arms outstretched over the scene. It's an artist's attempt to paint all three members of the Godhead in their relation to each other and to human beings. It reminds me of the story Dr. Jack Provancha used to tell about the teacher who asked a small boy what he was going to draw in art class. I'm going to draw a picture of God, he stated. The teacher smiled and said, but nobody knows what God looks like. Well, now they will, the boy replied. The thing that has always intrigued me about Dolly's painting of God is that the arms and the torso look like the trunk of a normal human male. When I first saw it, it raised the question in my mind, is God the Father really just like a human male? It's a dangerous question. It leads off into topics such as the ordination of women, the morality of the Equal Rights Amendment, headship theology, the existential orders of creation, the eternal subordination of the Son to the Father, last generation theology, the distortion of Trinitarianism by the three covenants of Calvinism, debates around cis and transgender rights, the foundations of religious liberty, the definition of family values, Christian nationalism, same-sex marriage, and much more. When one looks at the various metaphors that are used in the Bible for God, one finds such words as light, vine, bread, lion, hen, rock, shield, sun, love, refuge, horn, mountain, oasis, and yes, both father and mother. 
But the one that seems to be taken literally most often is Father. Perhaps this is because Jesus calls God his Father and tells us that God is our Father. Or perhaps it's because it fits so well into the patriarchal and hierarchical cultures that were prevalent in Bible times and are still found today. Or perhaps it's because most of the religions that have had a feminine, matriarchal, or maternal goddess have fallen into licentious fertility cults. We each have our own cultural pictures in our minds that describe men and women. We also each have personal experiences, for better or worse, with those who have been our paternal and maternal influences in our lives. I think the best description, though, that I've heard of how this plays out in American lives is something Matt Groening, the creator of the Simpsons television show, said. A woman knows all about her children. She knows about dentist appointments, soccer games, romances, best friends, the location of friends' houses, favorite foods, secret fears and hopes and dreams. A man is vaguely aware of some short people living in the house. It's clear that God does exhibit paternal characteristics in his work with us. He is our protector, our provider, our mentor, and our guide. He has a father's love for his erring children is so beautifully illustrated in the story of the prodigal son. We are also tempted, however, to see a stern and judgmental side to him. We're told that one of the devil's most successful ploys has been to get us to view God as arbitrary, vengeful, unforgiving, and severe attributes that are typically seen as being masculine. But we can also see the stereotypical characteristics of the feminine side in God, with his patience, his empathy, his compassion, support, communication, love of beauty, and unconditional love for his children. There are some in Adventism today who, largely working from the paternal attributes of God, the relationship between God and Jesus, and the order in which Adam and Eve were created, espouse a theory called headship theology. Partly in an attempt to limit or prohibit the ordination of women, they claim that men are meant to be the head of the Christian household. Ellen White does indeed claim that the husband and the father is the head of the household. She then goes on to say, however, that Adam and that Eve was Adam's second self, that God designed for women to be their husband's equal, that women have distinctive duties which are more sacred, more holy than those of men, that the king upon his throne has no higher work than has a mother, that an angel could not ask for a higher mission than motherhood, 
that the mother's influence in the home is to be paramount, her word, law. That wife and mother is doing fully as great and as important work as the husband and father. And that there is no other work that can equal the importance of the work of a Christian mother. These comments go a long way toward dispelling our traditional views of what it means to be the head of the household. My father is probably watching this sermon. I love and respect him very much. But he would be the first to agree with me that in our home, it was my mother who played the most important part in forming the characters of us children. While he was out battling the world to make a living and to provide for the comfort of his family, she was teaching us how to live a Christian life. As just one example, I was frequently punished by my mother in the old-fashioned method of a hard spanking on my bare bottom. But I can't ever remember seeing my mother exhibit anger toward me. She would hold me on her lap, or when I was older, have me sit next to her on her bed, where she would recite to me the characteristics of the crime I had allegedly committed and the need for an appropriate punishment. And then she would have me bend over. As she spanked me, she would always tell me that it hurt her more than it hurt me. I'm still not sure I believe that, but I am sure she believed that. She would then have us both kneel together where I would pray for forgiveness and for strength to make me a better person. I I know that sounds corny, and even to me, it's very old-fashioned. But having myself at times lashed out at my children in anger, I am still amazed at her example of unconditional love and patience. And I'm absolutely convinced that my picture of a loving God was transferred to me by her from the way she dealt with me as a busy and troublesome child. No one has influenced my relationship with God more than my mother did. And through her, I can clearly see the motherly attributes of God. As I mentioned before, I believe that many of our current controversies in our nation and in our church are based on a faulty picture of God, one that emphasizes his fatherhood and minimizes his motherhood. But we can't contain God within masculine and feminine titles of father and mother. Neither should we label our fellow human beings and categorize them by gender within specific spiritual classifications, thus limiting their value to the church or to the world. We should not expect society to seriously recognize things like our calls for religious liberty, while we as a church continue to refuse to recognize the liberty that Christ provided to all of his followers. Last week, Tony mentioned that we as individuals should not act as stumbling blocks to others who are being led by the Holy Spirit. 
it seems to me that it is exponentially more dangerous if an entire denomination is attempting to block or deny the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of groups of Christians based on whether they are Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, or any other type of categorization. God, in essence, is both our mother and our father. This can seem troublesome, but we should not be startled by it, for even as humans, most mothers reveal some masculine characteristics, and there are motherly features found in most of our fathers. As our scriptural text for today says, Christ wished that he could protect his people as a mother hen watches over her chicks. And in Isaiah 63, 13, God says he will comfort us as a mother comforts her children. Thus, we can't realistically support patriarchy based on the order of creation in the Garden of Eden. Most Bible translations, modern translations of Genesis 1, support the idea that God created human beings who together reflected the image of God, some exhibiting more of the paternal characteristics and some exhibiting more of his feminine ones. As a Good News translation puts it, so God created human beings, making them to be like himself. He created them male and female. I like to have people do what I want them to do. The idea that males should be in charge has a great appeal to me. But patriarchy has a poor historical record. And while I'm not encouraging strict matriarchy, I do believe it is time that the world also sees the motherly attributes of our loving God. The maternal spirit of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount is, to a large degree, what will fill the spiritual needs of the non-Christian Japanese people, of us Christian Americans, and of all human beings. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are the children whose mothers live love in the image of God, for they will know the way, the truth, and the life.